This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yo, what's up, guys? You like our podcast? You want to make your own? You have all the power, all the resources you need to make your own podcast. That's right. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you a rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. And here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish video podcasts to Spotify, which is super important. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. That's right. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That is anchor.fm to get started. It's what we use. We get a little kickback from it and we appreciate it. So if you guys want your own podcast, go to anchor.fm. .fm to get started. Peace. Hello and welcome to the Anatomy of Marriage podcast. I'm your host, Melanie Studley. Hello, my friends. My name is Seth Studley. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and we are excited to bring you back again to the re-release of season one. And today we're on episode seven, part two, It's Complicated. And this episode is all about what Dr. Tina calls the underbelly of intimacy, where things kind of go wrong, where there's trauma and abuse and neglect and lack of education Mm -hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. But before we dive into the episode, we want to welcome you if you are new here and welcome you back if you are an old listener. This show is about all things marriage and relationship related because we wanted to make the resources that we wished we had had when we were going through the hardest parts of our marriage. That's right. And I wish that I had read the books 10 years ago that I read in the last two years mm-hmm. and we want to help you do that too so go to audibletrial.com forward slash anatomy of marriage to get a free audiobook on us i recommend something on growth mindset sex and education or anything like that audibletrial.com forward slash anatomy of marriage you're welcome thank you yes um yeah so without further ado let's dive into episode 7.2 it's really complicated enjoy intimacy and sexuality can be a profoundly healing um, and bonding part of a relationship. And I think it's the thing that we do the least amount of preparation for in helping people do it well. And probably the most unfortunate amount of unhelpful loading in. Welcome back to Stronger Marriages Podcast, where we explore why marriages really succeed and fail. I'm your host, Melanie, and this is the bonus sex episode titled, It Is Really Complicated. This episode is going to cover a lot of different things in regards to sexuality. Some is the way we learn about it, some is the way we actually approach it, and some is healing from sexual abuse. There will be really heavy stories in this, and I will warn you when those are about to play, so that if you are triggered by these things, you can totally turn the episode off. Without further ado, let's dive right in. My favorite thing, sexually or not, that you do is to touch my hair, and you don't ever do it. Well, there's a, okay, so. So there's a million reasons no, that you therapy, won't, I or. about, like, things are systemic. That means, like, everything is connected. So this is an actual argument that we got in one night and recorded, and yes, it sucked as bad as it sounds like it sucked. And the gist of what Seth is saying is that he knows what I like, but he chooses not to do it. And here's why. often than not, it's the wrong timing. Well, okay. Too, no, no, it's like, what? it's either too cold, it's everything. The chances of me doing the right thing are so slim. Just listening back to that conversation really annoys me, but it shows me something. It is so, so hard to talk about intimacy. It's hard to talk about what you want, what you expect, all of those things. And I can't even play you more of the argument because it just goes round and round in these weird circles that don't feel particularly related. And even that's annoying. Let's talk to Les and Leslie Parrott about why they think that is. So just how 
how hard it is for couples to feel comfortable talking about things that are intensely private and loaded and emotional and also fragile Mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how brave you have to be to find a way through that. And the research says that uh, really, if you want a fulfilling love life, it's not about, you know, just the physical aspect of it, of course. Um, That's the passionate side of love, right? Sternberg did a tremendous uh, gift for the professional community at Yale years ago, about 15 years ago, when he did this massive study on love and said that you can break it down into three ingredients. Passion is that biological side. That's what gets two people together in the first place. It's the chemistry. Chemistry. It's, yeah, it's what draws you. And that will soon fade. It's guaranteed. That's not going to be at a 10 out of 10 every day of the week, every week out of the year, all your married life long. It just doesn't work that way. Um, thankfully, there's also intimacy, which is the emotional side of love. And that's that part of love that draws you together, uh, that's, that increases over time because you have a shared history. Um, You're attached. Does. You feel safe. You're completely, you right. know, don't have to edit your thoughts. You're known. You can trust. You get me, and I get you yeah. like nobody else on the planet. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're reading off the same sheet of music here. Even when nobody else hears the song, uh, we got this. Um, and then, of course, there's commitment, and that's the willful part mm-hmm. of love. That's the part that is truly a decision. It's the part that says in spite of all the uncertainty and unpredictability in our lives, I'm going to make this relationship rock solid. That doesn't come from your hormones. It doesn't come from your emotions. It comes from your will. And so if you think of those as the hot, warm, and cold ingredients of love, passion, intimacy, and commitment, um, and you don't put all your money on passion, it begins to balance things out. So you don't have this crazy expectation about what things should be happening in the bedroom because it's much more than that, right? Our friend Kevin Lehman says sex begins in the kitchen, and it's so true. Um, this is not just an isolated thing that we do, however many times we do that. It's, it's, it's a way of living that cultivates that and brings out that natural expectation and, and expression. Yeah, and I love that point because it's often less the conversation and more just the dance together. Um, you know, like, like you said, the cherishing moment earlier in the day that leads to the relaxed shared experience later. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's just knowing that there's an ebb and flow to intimacy and there's an ebb and flow to passion and letting the commitment hold you. And then you don't feel anxious or guilty when there's that ebb because you realize, well, that's what commitment is. And when we stay committed and we keep coming back, then it flows back in. I was struck by that idea that love has three different ingredients. I had never really thought of it in that particular way before. So when Dr. Les Parrott said that, it made me realize that I have been trying to make chocolate chip cookies for like 12 years without all the ingredients. And messed up chocolate chip cookies are one thing, but flying a plane, now that's another. I'll let Dr. Tina Schirmer-Sellers clarify. Let's take flying a plane. Pretty complex thing, right? We wouldn't expect anybody to be able to fly a plane without any instruction and, you know, supervision, all of that. We wouldn't hand them, you know, keys or whatever, say, go fly a plane. And yet we expect people to be able to navigate all the... um, the emotional intelligence and physical intelligence and sexual intelligence mm-hmm. and all of the relational intelligence that goes into that. And Nope, that's not your phone. It's hers. No, you know, we wouldn't expect someone to be able to do that. And yeah. we totally expect people to be able to do that. Yeah. And we give them absolutely nothing to be able to to navigate that in relationships. Yeah. That's true. And like, as I hear you talk, it's, you know, not only you're trying to navigate what you're feeling emotionally you know what what barriers you need to let down or or which ones are safe to still hold right you're also responsible for to some degree or at least feel responsible for the other persons you know are they enjoying this is this okay is this you have some empathy and like understanding towards your partner of course so it's almost like both of you are responsible for your emotional wellness and the other person's simultaneously and that's like that's huge that's exactly that's a ton so no wonder it can go sideways so often so now we're not only baking cookies without enough ingredients we don't even know how to turn on the oven slash fly a plane that's how i got there 
But anyway, it just showed me how much we actually don't know about intimacy and relationships and sexuality and all of that stuff. So I asked Dr. Tina what her dream sex ed would be for people. And here's what she said. Sex education would begin, it would begin at two and it would follow the children. So what are children interested in too? What are they starting to look at, talk about? Well, they're discovering their body, you know, and they're finding things and they're wanting things labeled. Well, you're labeling them, their noses, their ears, their eyes. They're, you're helping them label their bodies as, mm-hmm. well, as you help them label their world. Mm-hmm. And you're giving them the names of all parts of their body. Right. Not funny names. You're giving them the real names and maybe you're getting the picture books out and they're the whole body and you're showing them and maybe you're showing them what the insides of their bodies look like, too. And the genitals are all part of it, just like the kidneys and everything. Right. And Mm -hmm. it's all And in my world. I think the body is an amazing thing. And so I talk about it that way, like, wow, isn't this an amazing, wonderful thing? And we take care of it. Because it's a wonderful thing. And that's why we learn to brush our teeth and, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. And when they hit four and five and they become curious about other people's bodies. And so then you help them learn about other people's bodies. And that's when doctor play happens and you expect that that's going to happen. And Mm -hmm. so you don't shame them when it does. It's like, well, of course, yes, your brother's different than you are. Your sister's different than you are. Your mom or your dad is different than you are, however Mm -hmm. it goes. And so there there are, we know because we have plenty of books, that there are very particular curiosities that show up at very particular ages. We know when they're coming. We plan for them. We know when they're going to walk in on their parents. We know that's going to happen. We know how we're going to respond. We plan for it. Mm -hmm. And so that kids are developmentally on time and we are just ready for it when it happens or we're we're preparing them if it's going to be something like when their body starts changing. If boys are going to start having wet dreams at 9 or 10, we letting them know, hey, your body's starting to change. It's going to start to change. These things are going to happen. We want you to know that it's going to happen so you're not surprised and so you know you're not wetting the bed. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing. Your body's getting ready. But your body's going to change over like an eight-year span. Yeah. It's going to take a lot of time because a lot of really important things are going on. So we're telling them ahead of time. Mm-hmm. We're letting them know. And we're helping them know the bigger picture of what's happening too but not just what's happening physiologically but also what's changing relationally and culturally in their world right that things are changing in in their social group too Mm -hmm. and I think it's really important now with the digital world that we're helping kids know how to navigate that Mm -hmm. as well that there's a lot of really big things that they're having to manage and we're helping them know like here's some things that are that you're going to be exposed to visually. And here's how we're going to want you to probably manage that because it's going to be a lot to have to manage. Mm -hmm. So it's staying ahead of them. So as I was editing this last part, this line stood out to me. Staying ahead of them. And I realized like that's one of the biggest problems. Our sex education generally doesn't stay ahead of us. It's typically behind us. By the time you're learning about what things actually are, you've already experienced some of it. And you're making interpretations of that experience without actual knowledge, which is not super great. And it's one thing when you're like 10 and learning about wet dreams after you've had them. But it's a totally different thing when you're like 26 and learning about sex after you're already married. I had these fantasies of this romantic Hollywood sort of picture. This is our friend from episode four. This like big fluffy down filled bed and <laughs> the, the, the curtains are flowing and it's like white curtains and you know the sun is beaming in and you're kissing right. So I had these like ideals in my mind of what it was going to be like. So like the, the first week we were married during our honeymoon you know the first night I'm feeling really uncomfortable. It's really painful. I'm not enjoying it at all. I'm trying really hard to enjoy it. And my husband is being really kind and patient towards me being like, we don't need to do this. We can wait. Like we can take our time. And I think I was just really stubborn and gung ho. Like I just wanted everything to be magical and perfect and, um, forced it and it just was not pleasant it's not all about intercourse or it's not all about this i just want i just want to start with holding and touching like it doesn't have to just be this or that behavior people make it all about 
one behavior or mm-hmm. another behavior. They make it all about intercourse. People come into my office all the time and say, we haven't had sex in a long time. And I'll jokingly say, well, what kind of sex haven't you had? You know, mm-hmm. Because it's all been reduced to the vernacular of intercourse. Tina, shut the front door. You're telling me that sex is more than just intercourse? Lady... What if you thought of sexuality and touch and loving touch as a banquet? Okay, I gotta cut you off right there. So I don't know about you guys, but I don't go to very many banquets. But I do go to the grocery store. So I'm going to infuse this next clip with some grocery store analogies to help it make more sense to all of us non-banquet attending people in the world. So let's start over. What if you thought of sexuality and touch and loving touch as a banquet? Or Fred Meyer slash Kroger slash Target. And that it wasn't about intercourse. Chicken cutlets. And it wasn't about a goal. Rotini noodles. And it wasn't about orgasm. Pesto. But it was about connection and pleasure. Sampling brie cheese on a crusty cracker with jam. Or finding your favorite vans on clearance. You know the ones I'm talking about with a zipper on the back. And that every time you decided to touch, what made it successful, quote-unquote, was that connection and pleasure happened. You sample all the samples, stroll those aisles, read those labels, say hi to the lady at the deli and the man in the produce aisle. Connection. Pleasure. That's all. That is all. So whether you had five minutes or you had five hours... (laughs) Five hours? That is a long time to shop at a grocery store, Tina. Connection and pleasure was what was going to happen. And you had a banquet, right? And so it wasn't going to be cereal every time, but it was, what did you feel like? What did you want? And connection and pleasure. So that way, it was different all the time. And it was whatever you had the energy for. So sometimes in your marriage, you might be sick. Ice cream. Or maybe there are babies. Potato salad from the deli. Whatever. And sometimes you have lots of time and sometimes you have no time. And sometimes somebody has, somebody feels wild and it feels crazy. And Chicken dippers. Sometimes you feel tender. and Nachos. But you know, connection and pleasure is going to happen. But you're not stuck on it is going to be this behavior all the time or this thing all the time. Because if you make it the same thing all the time, it'll fall to the law of diminishing returns. And I don't care how much you like one thing, if you do that one thing every single time, someone is going to get bored and desire is going to fade. So the reason I created the grocery store analogy was because when Tina talked about the banquet and the idea of eating the same thing over and over again, and how sex is reduced to just intercourse, the first thing that popped into my head was what it felt like for me when I was newly married and I would go to the grocery store. I used to spend a really long time at the grocery store looking up and down the aisles and thinking, oh, what can I make for supper tonight? This is so much fun. I'm a grown-up. But now I've got three kids and a dog and I don't give two craps about going to the grocery store. But y'all, that's all on me. My attitude about the grocery store is what makes it boring and bad. But if I change my attitude to look for connection and pleasure, I guarantee that I can have a whole new set of eyes for old Fred Meyer, and I could probably enjoy myself. One of the lines I like to use with my wife every so often, because, you know, you can't use them too much. you gotta, <laughs> you got to pace yourself. This is Dr. Corey Allen again. You'll remember him from last episode. I'm saying that because she's sitting right here shaking her head at me. Um, is the whole, hey, are you interested in some moderate to mediocre level sex tonight? You know, because it's just like I want to hang, I want to have sex with you and I want to hang out, but I'm, I can't promise a lot, you know, because I'm tired. It's been a long day for both of us. We're exhausted, but hey, let's celebrate. Let's, let's, let's have some tender, loving kind of moments. And so that's what I love is when couples will empower that area of their life by just naming and claiming. Because a lot of times, if you can get on the same page and say, yeah, I can't, I can't go five star with you. But I could do three and a half. I could do three, you know, because then he's like, your husband could be fine. I'm I'm totally on board with that. And maybe then it evolves to five. But if it doesn't, so what? You know, because it's like, hey, this is a process. This is a language. On his podcast, Sexy Marriage Radio, Dr. Corey Allen talks a lot about low desire and high desire sexual partners. I'll let him explain more about it. Because I think a lot of the time, if you're talking about sex, the low desire just feels... 
know, just get your paws off me. You know, it's just I have what you want, and I know that, and therefore we're. I mean, that's where I love it because Schnarch said at a, at a talk one time he said it would have been a whole lot easier if God just gave women two vaginas because then they could have just given one to their husband and kept one to themselves, and you're not fighting over it anymore. And it's like, yeah, I, I could see that, but it didn't happen that way. What about the high desire partner? The culmination of great sex is a true both people being full-on willing, engaged participants, giving and taking and sharing and enjoying all of it. And it's just kind of a free flow of it. When it turns into obligation, subligation, all that kind of stuff where it just gets messy, it's not good for either one. Because that's where you get into this whole concept of the high desire partner is seeking bad sex. Yeah. It's like, hold on. Why do you keep seeking something that she's not even remotely interested in? And it's not saying don't seek it. It's just saying, let's figure out a different way. Let's figure out something that's to where it's it's a collaborative kind of a thing where you both are willing participants and you both are engaged. My wife was very easy to read me anytime I was hovering. She knew exactly what was going on. And she's like, and so when she finally says, uh, you're hovering, that's like, Okay, thank you. I recognize that's not attractive. That's not helping invite this to happen. It's becoming needy. And if you got kids, you don't want to be needed because you know what that's like. It's like, get it off me. (laughs) Give me some space. So last thing you want is a husband or a wife assuming that role. So this is just a more empowering kind of a grown-up stance. So we've learned a lot about sexuality and intimacy. Tina brought up the banquet idea or grocery store idea and that sex is not just one single act, but rather it's a way of interacting with your partner that can take many different forms, just like you can buy anything from earrings to potato chips at the grocery store. So why limit ourselves, right? While Dr. Corey is talking about the idea of sex as a language and that it doesn't always have to sound the same to still have meaning, much like poetry is written differently than a novel or the way that jazz is different than an Italian aria. And one of the biggest things that I'm learning from this episode is that sexuality and intimacy are on a biopsychosocial spiritual dynamic continuum, which is just a really fancy way of saying that as you change and grow in these different areas, so does your sexuality and intimacy. And stick with me because this might seem weird at first, but let's start with biology. Think about it. If you have an emergency appendectomy, does that change the way that you connect physically with your spouse? Of course it does. A sick and healing body cannot be touched the same way that a perfectly healthy body can. What about the psychological aspects? If you are depressed, do you have the same type of intimate connection with your spouse? I don't think so. So our sexuality and intimacy is ever evolving, whether we like it or not. But unfortunately, we tend to have a static understanding about our sexuality and intimacy and believe that it does not change over the years or with our circumstances. And that sets us up to be frustrated and confused. A good example of how much we don't viscerally understand this idea as a culture is the fact that when you give birth to a baby, the doctors and nurses actually have to tell couples not to have sex for six weeks because the mother has to heal from childbirth. This should be so obvious and something that everyone understands, but it isn't, partially because of the culture of fear around openly talking about our bodies and the hypersexualization of certain parts of our bodies. And when we have completely ignored the biopsychosocial spiritual aspect of our own bodies, we end up with a society that does not understand the concept of having to heal from childbirth or even the enormous change your body goes through after giving birth. Things like nursing. Nursing a baby changes how your body functions for a time and usually how it looks for the rest of your life. And when we don't understand this, we approach our bodies, sexuality, and intimacy from such a one-dimensional, surfacey level place, and it only hurts everyone involved. If you can't look at your partner through a biopsychosocial spiritual lens, you may be unintentionally hurting them by ignoring things such as physical illness, past trauma, etc. So our sexuality and intimacy changes and grows as we change and grow, and it evolves with the situations that we live through. It isn't static or still. It's dynamic. And so we need to learn to be flexible and dynamic as well. So... Here's the part of the episode where we talk about the cleanup, as Dr. Tina called it in the first sex episode. But we're going to take it a step farther than just healing from misinformation about sexuality, but we're actually going to explore what it's like to heal from sexual trauma, both from the perspective of the victim and from the perspective of a parent of the victim. Now, these are super heavy stories. Their content is not graphic in nature, but they are still heart-wrenching and can put you in a very bad place if you're not careful. 
I do feel very strongly that this content and these stories are super important, and I want you to listen to them. But if you are triggered by these topics, please feel free to turn off the show. It's okay. If we stripped away everything that we have in the culture that we're born into now, and you strip away all of our kind of knowledges that we have, and we're left just with us and the stars, Mm -hmm. the power of the sexual experience and the bond that it can create in that moment leaves people in awe often. And in the very earliest days when people were drawing on the caves, they drew spiritual and sexual together. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is that, it's Mm awe-inspiring. There is something about the sexual and the spiritual that are together. And we know that, too, on on the underbelly of it, because when you hurt someone sexually, you hurt them in their soul. My disposition coming into it was I wanted to read books together. I wanted to... Here's our friend again. ...have conversations about it and, like, get to a point where we felt really comfortable. But my husband didn't Mm. feel comfortable talking about it. Mm. And I think... um, I think part of that is the family upbringing that we grew up in where um, I had dealt with this history of abuse and in the last few years before we had gotten married, I had gone through counseling and talked to people about those experiences. And I felt more comfortable talking about intimacy than he did. And I think still to this day, it's just a thing that it's hard. It's hard to talk to people about things when they don't feel comfortable crossing that barrier. And it is something that's still, I mean, it's still hard to talk about. The Bible says how you become one flesh I think it's so true. You affect each other so profoundly. And his discomfort has become my discomfort to a level. And I feel a lot of the things I think that he feels and vice versa. As I stepped into the parts of this story that have trauma and abuse, I noticed a pattern of disabling discomfort. And I hadn't really expected it. I know that there is shame associated with abuse, but it had never occurred to me that the sheer discomfort of speaking things of this nature was strong enough that people would actually risk harm to others so that they didn't have to be uncomfortable in the moment. Our next story starts exactly at that point, where someone knows something that could have stopped the sexual abuse of a seven-year-old child, but chose not to tell anyone out of sheer discomfort or fear. Colleen offered to share her story with us in hopes that it will help both the victims of sexual abuse and the family members of the victims. We altered her voice to protect her family, for obvious reasons. Here's her story. The one thing that just irked me to no end was being at my mother's funeral and having his sister-in-law come up to me and say, yeah, he's done this to other people and I wanted to strangle her. I could not even believe my ears. It's like, you knew about this. You knew who I was. I mean, there was ways she could have figured out how to get a hold of me, you know, and this, it could have not happened. And that just, the people can know something like that and not say anything. It's just heart-wrenching to think, oh, well, my child just went through that for, because you were too lazy to say something. I asked Colleen what it felt like when her daughter told her that she was being abused. I think I went into like a state of shock because I remember, I don't think we, she told me until it was like 10 o'clock at night or something. And I just that whole night, I felt like I couldn't even close my eyes. Your brain just starts going over every single thing, every second she was with the person. And it was, it was horrible. Colleen remembers the way that her happy-go-lucky daughter began to change after the incidents. She was um, pretty emotional, and it took her a long time to get through stuff. I had to, you know, every single night sit with her, and, um, you know, she would have to talk about what happened. And and after a while, I sort of put, like, a time limit. I go, we'll talk about this for, like, X number of minutes, and then we'll... You know, then I would tell her stories and I would make up different stories about her being, you know, this super strong superhero type person and little stories that were silly. And, you know, she liked that. So that that helped. And she did have therapy in, in that, too.
For me, Colleen's story represents so many different things all at one time. On top of dealing with her daughter's abuse, her own mother actually abandoned her, and within months, her father died. So in the span of a single year, she is grieving the loss of abandonment, the sexual abuse of her daughter, and the death of both of her parents. And some of her experiences were isolated from her husband, while others were shared. And all of this took an enormous toll on their marriage. You have to function, and then you have to try to deal with, you know, your daughter being abused and what that's going to do to her life, and that just tears your heart out. Then your mother turns on you, and that is, like, unbelievable. And I think the worst thing that came out of that... Oh, well, I mean, for me, not... The worst thing was obviously my daughter, but all I could think of was like, oh my God, if my own mother can't love me and help me through this, why would anybody want to love me? Horrible. That was like torture. And it, it affected everything. It affected, you know, my marriage. And it's like, and then my dad died shortly after that, and, and he loved me. And, you know, I was his only daughter and the youngest. And, you know, when he died, I just felt like the only person in the world who loved me just died. And it was terrible. It's just a bad place to be. I asked Colleen if she thought that her husband understood what that was like for her. I I don't know. Yeah. He, he probably heard it enough. <laughs> you know, because any hurt he would cause me would just be like, you know, you don't love me, my own mother doesn't love me, so why would you? I'm not anything. I'm so thankful to Colleen for sharing her story. When I started this episode, I was so focused on the victims themselves healing from sexual trauma that I completely ignored the fact that parents and family members also become victims when a tragedy like this happens. I told Colleen how much it meant to me that she was willing to step back into something so incredibly painful to potentially help others who are walking on that same path today. I also talked with Dr. Corey Allen about the mental toll that it takes on an individual when they are abused as a child. Here is what he had to say about it. Obviously, it's going to taint everything just because you're talking about a traumatic episode. If you're looking at just the, the developmental stage of anywhere from 8, 9, 10 to 15, you got a whole lot of formative things going on, not only in your body with, with puberty, but your brain. A lot of the different things that could happen during that stage will dramatically impact in deep levels lifetime. Most people that I've ever come across in my practice that have had any kind of abuse, any kind of traumatic molestation kind of things, or just sexual trauma, they go down one of two paths. One is they go very, very promiscuous, and it's basically like they're trying to re regain power once they get to where they're uh, capable of seeking pleasure, seeking that. They, they, it's like they're trying to restore themselves through the avenue. The other is it's the complete shame and complete guilt, complete denial. Um, and a lot of times the deni denial comes because they may at some point uh, get a chance to uh, confront their abuser who then denies it because if it's a family member, it gets very convoluted and conflicted. So when the marriage comes into play, I'm a big believer that healing comes through the, the process you know, of what caused damage can actually cause healing. But it takes a partner that's tremendously willing to understand that and, and be patient. If you're not open in all areas of your marriage with your spouse, like there's a wall that gets put up. This is Allie, who you'll recognize from previous episodes. She made a really good point about the way that we sometimes unknowingly build walls around the topics that make us uncomfortable in our marriage. And I definitely have put up a wall in that area because I'm just, so uncomfortable by it. Tina Shermer Sellers also had some beautiful ideas around the fact that we tend to speak to our partners about intimacy and sexuality out of our hurt instead of out of our health. 
that rather than being able to speak to how lonely they are and how much they miss each other mm-hmm. and how just hurt they are, they're critical mm-hmm. and they're speaking from these more of these hurt places. Yeah. And this is what happens all the time. Mm-hmm. I think in part it's that we have set people up to not know how to be in conversation with each other around sexuality and intimacy in a way that really helps them find their way to each other mm-hmm. so that they can say, you know, I, I miss you and I, I, I don't know how to... So when I was editing this last bit of tape, something struck me between the conversation with Tina and Allie because Allie goes on to share this. But I think having kids has slowly started to erode the over-private mentality of things like that that I have. I've gotten really into birth since my last pregnancy. And like, it is unreal to me the amount of images that people see as a sexual image of a woman giving birth or a woman breastfeeding that I just, it infuriates me because I'm just like, no, like our bodies are doing something so incredible that God made us to do. Like, look at that and see that beauty Mm -hmm. versus like saying like, she should be wearing a robe. Like a human is coming out of her. She should not be wearing a robe. Like that is fine. And so I think for me, um, birth has been like the gateway for me. Like it's kind of opened up like I feel more comfortable with nakedness or bodies and things like that when I'm seeing it do what it's supposed to do in that aspect. How cool is that? So the same woman who in the last episode said that talking about sex was gross and inappropriate is now saying that she's getting more comfortable with nakedness and bodies just because birth is her gateway. So y'all, I think we just need to find our gateways because sexuality and intimacy are in fact a part of our biopsychosocial spiritual makeup. And I am not talking Maybelline. So start with your gateway. Start with your healthiest. Oh crap, I forgot that I'm not supposed to tell you what to do. Scratch that. I will start with my gateway. I will start with my healthiest, which for me happens to be feminism, and I don't care if that rubs you the wrong way. When I think about equality for women, it puts my mind into a space that views my own body in a more holistic and beautiful way. So I'm going to start there. And it might be childbirth for you. It might be nursing. I mean, who knows? I don't know. But start there. Start where you're the healthiest and speak to your spouse from your place of health, not your place of hurt. Shoot. There I go again. Telling people what to do. I know I say this every single time, but I totally love this episode. It was an amazing experience to get to talk to people that I know really well about these really um, hard it, things, hard and deep and intimate things and to have them be vulnerable enough. So we want to say thank you to those people who volunteered to be on the episode because that's really hard to do. And it's very, very helpful, though. Um, one of the things I wanted to say right off the bat that I really loved was that my friend Allie talked about finding her gateway to sex and intimacy through birth and how she loved, like, you know, after having kids, it kind of helped her be okay with bodies and nakedness and not be weird about it. And I just thought that was really beautiful. And because I experienced a similar thing where I felt really empowered after having children and like nursing babies just made me feel more beautiful and amazing and appreciate my body in a different way that I never had before. And I liked that she brought that up and sort of like, how can you find your gateway to intimacy through things that resonate with you, not what culture says or society says. And that was just a takeaway that I really loved from Allie. That's weird. I don't know what the equivalent would be for a guy. Like, I understand that being pregnant and carrying a child, the intimacy of all kinds of sorts that goes along with that. And then once you have the baby, you're like, oh my goodness, this came out of my body. Uh, And then being a mother and breastfeeding and all that stuff, I don't know what the equivalent would be for a guy in that I've never really thought about it that way, but um, yeah, I don't know. I do understand how it can be super empowering for a woman. So that's rad. Yeah. Another takeaway for me was the idea of this one dimensional understanding of intimacy where it's not biopsychosocial spiritual, where people are trying to divorce all of these concepts and have only sexual or only, you know what I mean? Like I think even just in culture now where you're trying to remove intimacy from sexuality like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's a huge thing in the current culture of, like, teenagers and young adults. Well, I think it's been divided for ages. 
Yeah, but I think it's more prevalent now. Like with all sorts, there's apps where you can literally just like just hook up, hook and up, that's and it's it. terrible. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's really damaging because we don't realize that there is a design to this system. It, I mean, it's going to sound so far fetched for just a minute here, but it's like the same concept of like monoculture growing crops. You know, growing thousands of acres of one type of crop. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. And I remember just now as I'm speaking that we did some food analogies, like the banquet. Mm-hmm. And stuff, mm-hmm. and yeah, like Facebook and Tinder and stuff. That's like, oh, I'm hungry. Well, I don't want to really do anything for it or work for it. Well, let me just go to McDonald's for the umpteenth time and get something really mm-hmm. gross and unhealthy, although it tastes delicious for you know ten minutes when you eat it. But then your body pays for it, and it's not it's not real. You mm-hmm. can't do that all the time. And I think modern day sexuality is like that and just like unhealthy unhealthy yeah just like going to mcdonald's all the time we're just selling ourselves short there's like so much better food out there Mm -hmm. you know a million times better and the same thing with with sex there's so much more um i don't know uh healthier uh, rewarding spiritually satisfying sex Mm -hmm. well yeah that's what i'm trying to get at too with that monoculture Mm. when you're literally growing one crop of the same thing you're growing Mm -hmm. field after field after field of russet potatoes you actually are in danger of losing all of the crops because you are not growing a healthy vibrant you know you have to have a variety of produce and Mm. a variety of plant life and a variety of bugs and a variety Mm. of whatever and so i think when we try to dissect and divorce the concepts of how it impacts you biologically and psychologically and socially and spiritually Mm -hmm. like when we try to say these things aren't connected i think it is very detrimental to our health and even today in the women's group someone was like do you prefer sex or intimate sex and i was Mm. like these should not be separate things what do you what do you think she was getting at? I'm just kind of curious now. I think she probably means sex I don't enjoy or sex I do enjoy mm. is what I read as a woman speaking to, having spoken to women. That's what I think she is getting at is do you prefer sex that your husband just asks for and you don't want mm-hmm. or do you prefer intimate sex? Mm. Which the only difference is connection. Intimacy mm-hmm. is just connection, knowing you well, mm-hmm. right? And so that was so sad for me to read because I'm like no sex that you have with your par- with your partner should just be mm-hmm. sex sex it mm-hmm. should all be connecting so this here's here's a question does sex have to have orgasm um, every time no not at all mm. it, i think it should just be connection and pleasure mm-hmm. but i that was awkward um but anyway <laughs> uh one thing i thought was really interesting on the sort of on the sadder side of this episode, because that's what this whole thing was about, like mm-hmm. the underbelly, the stuff that people go through, the trauma, the healing, how do you walk through that, is the um, the fact that in families systems, if one person is abused and it's known in that system, that it becomes multiple victims, right? You have the, yes. like the um, Colleen who spoke, you know, her daughter was abused, but it, mm-hmm. it, it traumatized everyone in the family. Yeah, because again, families are a system. Like mm-hmm. we talked about in one of the earlier episodes in season one, it's a mobile or a mobile. Hanging over a baby's crib. Right. You move one part of it, it affects the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a system, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the, the generational trauma even even though that trauma physical and sexual in this case happened to one person the fallout the generational fallout mm-hmm. can last for well generations yeah everything right? from the anxiety that like Colleen had and sort of projected mm-hmm. onto her kids or whatever that looks like those things can literally get like just transplanted from kid from parent to child and then child to grandchild and mm-hmm. then grandchild to great grandchild because mm-hmm. it's it's such so systemic it's so bound into what people think is normal it becomes right. their family of origin and I just thought that was a really interesting concept for people who are walking through that trauma or surrounded by that trauma to really think of how it has these bonds and these ties mm. and family members become victims children it's become victims even if they weren't victimized grandchildren and great grandchildren i mean this there, there's all kinds of research and we call it historical trauma things that happened 200 years ago literally can and do affect mm-hmm. people in the present right now and that's one thing that i i was thinking of less than leslie parrot Les parrot talked about and we've said it before the the family of origin is your university of relationships mm-hmm. well 
This can also be your university of relationships. You just have really bad professors and you go to a really bad college yeah. and you're learning really bad mm-hmm. maladaptive things that happen from something that you didn't even do. You're going do. to online school. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to diss online school. Grand I just can't, thought it would be funny. I won't, I won't name <laughs> universities, but yeah. That's you already funny. did. Sorry. Um, okay. Well, let me tell you something that I wrote in these notes a couple of days before I even re-listened to the podcast, can I just, I'll, I'll read something again, and uh, I have it, and I think it's super good quotes, and I have quotes that says, uh, live not from your wounds, but from your healed and strong Say places. Say that again, you said that all weird. Live not from your wounds, but from your healed and strong places, mm-hmm. right? If if listeners are going like, well, good gosh, how do I how do I get through this past trauma, or this happened to my, my parents, or my siblings or mm. whoever uh live from no, live not from your wounds but from your healed and strong places mm-hmm. and we all have wounds right talks about that in the the um John Eldridge book we all have wounds and we all have healed places and we also have strong places so what do you choose to live from you know which one of the three are you living from today? Mm-hmm. And I have something else. I can read that again later. But What's the other one? Well, it's just a quote. It says, uh, all addictions, bad behavior, hurtful words spoken, and self-destructive actions come from a place of hurt. We are all hurt. We all want to be better, love better, feel better, receive love better. We all are trying to do the best we can with what we have and what we know. We, we are not alone. We are responsible for the healing. We are not responsible or guilty of the trauma that others have done to us. We are responsible for the healing. We are responsible for the damage that we have caused. We must repair and manage damage control on the hurt we caused when we act from our hurt places. And that's just like, we're all hurt. We're all wounded. We're just trying to heal. Mm-hmm. And to think of it that way, to look at your spouse that way, or that guy that cuts you off in the traffic or whatever, um, mm-hmm. can be a really helpful place if we're able to slow down and do that, which mm-hmm. is really hard. Yeah. One of the things I thought was really um, beautiful or, in I don't know, insightful that Dr. Tina talked about was the idea of how we would never help hand someone the keys to an airplane mm-hmm. and just be like, here, fly, what, right. go, right. go ahead, right? And our relationships, our intimate relationships, especially marriages, are as destructive. She says, I think Dr. Claudia Groff Grounds said they can be destructive or they can be constructive, mm-hmm. you know, but they're really powerful forces. A marriage, a relationship is a very, very powerful force. And we're just letting people like willy nilly go fly them around, go mm. do whatever without any training, without, you know, you have to take yeah. a, you have to take tons of classes to be, to drive a car. I never thought of like marriage as a force. Yeah. Like da- an energy of two Claudia people coming it. together is like, Oh, now it's a force. Mm-hmm. And like that force, you know, it's kind of like a river, like two giant, two great rivers merging, you know? And then when you have kids... The mouths oh, of the Amazon. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. That's weird. Uh, or the mighty Mississippi, I prefer. But then when you have kids, it's like you put those kids in a canoe and you're in the married people's Depending river. on how steady your river is. Hang on, kids. Is, is what that's the kids That's a really good do. analogy. I just thought of it. It's just you're like turmoil and your children are just going through rapids endlessly or if you train them well kids there's going to be some rapids up here actually this is a perfect segue into like talking to your kids about such sex education i wouldn't give the you know we're not going to give mariner or tough or hattie the keys of the car you know mm-hmm. we're going to wait until they're ready there's mm-hmm. going to be tons of training around that so and you know if we're good parents which i think we're halfway decent we are going to continue to talk to them about sex mm-hmm. and sex education and ages and stages. It's not all at once. It's yes. ages and stages. Mm-hmm. But I just thought that was a really beautiful analogy of how, you know, beautiful in a sad way that we are letting people loose with marriage without any guidance. And, and like in the worst possible, it's like they're stoned. You're like, oh yeah, you're stoned. Go ahead and get married. And you know, like they're on the phenol. No, they're high. They're yeah, they're high. high. On, on, they're on, on the love, the feel good love chem- chemical phenylethylamine. And we go, oh yeah, you're stoned. Go ahead. Make all these great choices. Get a credit card. Buy a house. Get a dog. Do whatever you want because you're, you're in love. I'm trying and, to think <laughs> of a slang term for phenylethylamine. It's just like, oh man. A Fenny. I was high. I was high on Fenny's. Fenny's. <laughs> you can't blame me. But yeah, I just think that that's interesting. And I really, I like that she said it that way. I think it's helpful mm-hmm. to think of it that way. Uh, another thing that I thought was interesting too was that in the very beginning, we talked, we showed, or we played a snippet of that argument 
about how, mm. and then I narrated behind it saying mm-hmm. how complicated it is, how hard it is to talk about intimacy because it gets into this defensive mode. You don't know what to say. You don't know how to say it. You don't know, you don't want to say it, but mm-hmm. you want it to be known, but you don't you know, even know what you're trying to say. And so I think so many couples... you feel the frustration if you don't say it. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't even want to say... Like, I think especially for women, they don't want to say what they want. Mm. They want their husbands to know what they want mm-hmm. because for one one reason is they are told that if they say what they want, they are like slutty, mm-hmm. right? So you go, well, I definitely can't say what I want or my partner, especially if you're a Christian. Mm. If I say what I want, my partner is going to think I'm trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then if you don't say what you want, you don't get what you want. And then your partner, you know, you're, you're just like dancing around these conversations yeah. and you're just angry and they're frustrated and you're frustrated. And it's just so complicated to talk about intimacy. And that is honestly one of the reasons that I wanted to make the workbook, mm. you know, so we made the best workbook ever. You can get it at anatomyofmarriage.com and just click on the orange workbook button. And in chapter seven, nice segue to the workbook. it is called don't turn the lights on but this is a it's for both chapters mm-hmm. and it talks about like when was the first time you remember hearing about or learning about sex did you have the talk with one of your parents did you see a risque movie at a friend's house and then number two how old were you number three what feelings did you associate with that experience were you uncomfortable afraid confused ashamed and mm-hmm. then there's a ton of reading after that we're talking about you know the the definition of int- intimacy how people don't understand sex and intimacy and how they're combined and Mm -hmm. all these things and i think this is a really important chapter too that if your first introduction to sex was through abuse Mm. you have so much to work through you know you have you're gonna have like dr Corey allen said it will taint everything yeah absolutely everything it will confuse your husband touching you will be confusing Mm -hmm. um your husband's desire for you will be confusing because mm-hmm. your brain is tainted in that way. That does not mean that it can't become clean, right? Well, it's a wound against, it's not only a wound against the body, it's a wound against like the spirit. Well, that's what Dr. Tina says. When right. someone is wounded sexually, they are wounded in their soul. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, so it's not just a... So, so as a therapist, I look at it this way. At the top of the show, we were talking about sex is spiritual and it's all combined biopsychosocial um, spiritual and that is the only form of abuse that like can damage you so deeply i mean uh, like other than prolonged like extreme torture yeah. or trauma yeah. or, or or something like that held hostage for a year or whatever but that one so so think about it as a, from a therapist's point of view, it's like, okay, this is this is profound. This takes a really long time to undo and get over and rewrite a narrative. So because we know that that type of abuse, sexual abuse, also affects your spirit and soul, think about what a healthy sexual narrative looks like. Like that affects your spirit and soul positively, mm-hmm. right? So there's mm-hmm. no division Mm-hmm. in it there's no division mm-hmm. yeah and one of the things i love about the workbook too that so my friend in this episode talks about how she had such a lack of education around sex and intimacy and she had all these visions of what you know sex would look like when she was married and she had all these sort of like fantasy things she talked mm-hmm. about you know like flowing pill like flowing curtains and mm-hmm. all of that stuff right and she talked about how that idea in her mind really made actual sex with her husband terrible because she's like i don't know how to bridge this gap because it wasn't that right but one of the things that i love about the workbook is that it talks about and this is something people don't know how to talk about because we have divorced sex from intimacy in this really horrendous way that makes people think oh sex is one thing intimacy is another thing Mm. they really should never i don't believe they should be separate i think when they are separate is when we uh, when we hurt one another Mm -hmm. but the reason i'm bringing up the workbook again is that we have questions in here specifically talking about how do we talk to our spouse about the things we actually want when it comes to sex, mm-hmm. right? And and when I say that, I know immediately people are thinking like, oh, lingerie, you know, like they go immediately to what culture says is sexy in air quotes, right? Right. But what I am meaning is what type of uh, intimate moments would what would look like success to you as a wife or a husband in an intimate moment with your partner? So I'm going to just break this down and I've used this at all of our example. Like whenever I speak to women, I always talk about this. Mm -hmm. If you brushed my hair, 
every single day, like I would be that much closer to being intimate with you because I love it. Mm -hmm. So is that something that you could buy at a grocery store? No. What? A hairbrush? No, brushing my hair. Is that is that the same thing as a nighty? No. <laughs> it's an intimate act and people right. don't realize that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So things as simple as we talked for 30 minutes, we did the dishes together, we ate ice cream, and then we snuggled on the couch. Mm-hmm. And then when you are creating those intimate moments, it could then lead into what I think should be intimate sex, right? And I think people don't have the language, they don't have the bravery, they feel embarrassed, they feel discouraged or afraid right. to talk about things in that way but the the workbook so, gives you that opportunity which is awesome that's a really good job on the workbook what what if what if sex was just like in the thing like oh we we washed the dishes together we uh, snuggled we ate ice cream we had sex we read a book together on the thing like it's not it doesn't end in sex. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it shouldn't end in sex. Right. And I think that's that's what culture teaches us. But so many people's like, oh, yeah, oh, you know, oh, a movie and a date. Did you go back to the apartment and mm-hmm. boom, in the night? Yeah. Have sex or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's a really damaging. Like, oh, Valentine's night was really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean? Yeah. What, what the, did you do? Did yeah. you not like your steak? Yeah. Did the, you not, you know what I'm saying? It's not about connection and pleasure. And that's what I'm trying to, like, that intimacy, that connection, that pleasure is mm-hmm. really the purpose behind all of that. And mm-hmm. I think, again, when we divorce sex and intimacy from one another, we are divorcing uh, huge biopsychosocial spiritual elements of our personhood, of mm-hmm. how God made us to be. Mm-hmm. And it's like that whole thing I said last week in the episode where, you know, if you give a baby water and air and food and a blanket, they die. They no, don't if you live. Don't, if you don't give them... No, if you don't give them love, oh, they die. okay, right. If you give them water, food, a blanket, a bed, they still without don't thrive. Touching, without right. touching mm-hmm. them, they die. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, we get it so confused, and that's why so many people are so incredibly lonely, even in marriage, because they're not connecting and marrying those concepts of mm-hmm. intimacy and pleasure and connection to sex. Right. They think sex is a separate thing. And I don't like, I think we talked about this before, but unfulfilling sex to a man is still unfulfilling. Like he can still orgasm, but be like, that. that's not great. I don't feel great. That's happened. You know, and that happens to people all the time. People, lovely people are having terrible sex all the time. Right. Because they have divorced the concept of intimacy mm. from. Well, I think for guys, sometimes we don't know how to, uh, be intimate. Yeah, I think most honestly, times you don't know. Honestly, yeah, we just don't know, right? You're not taught. We're not, yeah, just like... Little girls are taught to be intimate creatures. We are taught to nurture. I mean, I think there is an, an innate well, definitely, thing in, yeah, in women. I mean, Hattie natural... is like a tiny nurse. The second I don't... If I look halfway ill, she comes and brushes my hair away from my head and gets me things. The boys are like, Mom, will you make me cereal? And I'm right. like you know, turning green on the couch, but Hattie right. is attuned to it. Yeah. So I think there is like, it's in our nature, but... No, there's definitely a, a, a nature versus, you know, nurture mm-hmm. kind of thing and things that can be fostered and, and not fostered, of course. Uh, but yeah, I think men in general don't know how to be intimate. I'm guilty of that for sure, you know, but we, we know something deep in our spirits uh, wants to be intimate. We And that's it's probably where a lot of like, toxic masculinity like male mm-hmm. aggression and anger come from because mm-hmm. like we know there's more out there mm-hmm. but we don't know how to do it and when i channel it yeah, yeah like when i'm frustrated when i'm frustrated and have been frustrated for a long time that just turns into anger mm-hmm. and like short uh and for know. lots of people turns into violence for lots of men yeah unfortunately and then you, you try to cope with alcohol or drugs or whatever then that can really turn again that's it's a divorce of biopsychosocial spiritual because Mm -hmm. we're not taught to i mean men are not given a safe place i guess in church there's lots of safe places like that but lots of men don't like it because they're not used to it well church has kind of gotten weird because it's like okay this is too safe this is too touchy-feely which just makes people go you know makes some people go not everybody well a lot of people a lot of men how about that a lot of men it makes them go yeah. But I don't I don't know. I think there's a lot to say for that that mm-hmm. I, I agree men aren't 
really taught how to do intimacy well. And so mm-hmm. that ends up in that conversation of, oh, what, is it sex sex or is it intimate sex? Right. And I just hate that. I feel it, like that's such a sad thing that happens to us. And I don't know. Again, I think this episode is a really great episode. It's It's a hard episode to listen to. But I hope that the resources in the workbook are helpful to anyone who is walking through the healing of a past trauma from childhood, mm-hmm. any sexual abuse, anything like that. Or that they find it helpful if it's something that they've dealt with with a family member or anything like that. Yeah, and if this has brought something up for you guys, remember one of my favorite cro- quotes by Freud. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, any Anything buried in the past, uh, uh, unresolved issues always come up in uglier ways in the future. Like uh, It's like unresolved issues don't die, mm-hmm. right? Issues that we haven't talked about, that we haven't faced, that we haven't gone through in order to get to the other side they come up in uglier ways Mm -hmm. so i hope that gives you hope and maybe a a wake-up call of like okay i need to do this work there is another side to these things Mm -hmm. and it's an always ever growing process so if it did bring something up for you then that is not necessarily a bad thing i encourage you not to shy away from it yeah one other thing i want to say too it's going to sound weird but I learned when uh, I had several losses of people. Uh, My cousin died uh, unexpectedly when she was 16. And then I had a friend die of cancer and another friend die of cancer. And our dog died of cancer. And I had this insight at some point through these losses that there is. And so I'm just kind of clarifying if people are afraid to process something very hard. Mm -hmm. This is the way that I I process death. So this is not the same thing as sexual abuse, but death. Mm -hmm. Um, But I felt like... I had a I had a set amount of tears and words for each grief that or each thing I had to process, right? Mm. And if I did not say them, it was like a backlog, a back storage of tears and grief that just sits there. It does like not jam. go away. Yes, like like if I only cry one time about my dog dying, mm-hmm. I've got about 50 more times of crying stuck back here somewhere that if I don't get them out, they'll just come out at different times. They'll come mm-hmm. out when it doesn't make sense. They'll come out when I'm in church or when someone's talking mm-hmm. about their dog or when I, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And so the thing that I would say with grief, if, you ha- or if you're afraid to grieve, if you're like, I don't know what processing this pain looks like, mm-hmm. that's what it looks like to me. That's something that I just, I'd never heard anyone explained it that way, but it's like, there's, you know, X amount of times I need to talk about it. And there's so X you, amount of times I have to cry. Did you feel that you finally had closure when you like cried all the tears out? I mean, maybe we don't know if you're even done. Well, it's like your, your, I think your body will tell you. And mm. I think, but the thing is people don't want their body to tell. They want to go, okay, I cried. I'm done. Mm. They want to control it. Right. And it doesn't work that way. And I learned that, especially after oh, Ellie, no. when Ellie died, our dog Ellie, we had to put her down and she was just my absolute angel of a mm-hmm. dog. I, I promise that dog was a gift from God. And so I I realized by that time I had lost enough people that mm-hmm. mattered mm-hmm. that I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to fight it. I'm not going to fight grieving her oh, because so you're like letting, I was letting, letting it, it go, go right. and I'm processed, like actually letting it process instead of like strangling it and mm-hmm. trying to hold it back, which made me feel miserable so that's kind of like the analogy of a surfer you know like you can stand in front of a big wave and just try to stand there Mm -hmm. it's gonna it's gonna knock you out anyway Mm -hmm. like the time we got destroyed in hawaii Mm -hmm. or you can go you know what i'm gonna ride this wave Mm -hmm. and then a good surfer knows and can cut through and all this stuff and then literally ride it out Mm -hmm. until just the wave oh you know, if you watch a wave, it yeah. just goes away. Turns it it into barrels nothing, yeah. out, right? And so that's a really good analogy. It's like, ride the wave. Mm-hmm. It's going to knock you over. Anyway, anyway that, yeah. you, you have me thinking because I don't cry a ton, you know, I guess. But when I do, I remember the last time I cried, I was, I think I was alone. No, I was driving in the car and I was just like, it, it, uh, I don't know. It, it's it's really hard to describe. And I guess I should just like, boom, let it go, like ride the wave. Because when I try to hold it back, I literally in my brain saying, this is so hard. I'm just like sitting there sobbing. I'm like, this is so hard. I don't want to feel anything else, anything except this right now. And it, I don't know, some kind of grief or something like that. But it's processing. It's part of the process. Well, that's, that's kind of that's actually helpful for me to think of it. That way, like, okay, I have a set amount of tears or I can talk about this stuff or whatever, but sometimes talking sucks too. Um, 
so it's a, I, either I can get smashed by, <clears throat> smashed by the wave or like just ride the wave and let it go mm-hmm. which it always it always feels better yeah to like ride the wave rather than be smashed by it yeah i always feel better after i cry i well, think most I th- guys would say that too yeah and i think when people are trying to process trauma a lot of them are so afraid to talk about it they don't want to process it it feels mm-hmm. terrifying you got to bring it up again all of these things but it's that same idea that mm-hmm. you are holding back mm-hmm. a giant wave and you just can't do it but once you let it go and there is a set time there's a set amount of and it's different for every person it's different right. for every problem you face every grief every loss every whatever um, but i just wanted to kind of bring up that idea if it's helpful for somebody to yeah. think of processing grief that way I, I i've told this to so many clients i can't even remember but when people are dealing with grief or, or things that we're talking about, I talk to them and say, you know, in my experience, I have found that sometimes the only way out of something is through mm-hmm. something. Like, okay, there's three walls that are solid straight behind me. I'm not, I can't go that way. I'm not going to get out that way mm-hmm. or I can cope with it or whatever that's not healthy. Or that thing that scares me the most is right in front of me. And mm-hmm. that's the only way out. Because I see the sun shining super brightly over there. There's no clouds over there. And the only way out is through. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes, I don't know, maybe this is the life of a therapist. I feel like such a hypocrite because I say all these things and then go, oh, you need to remind yourself of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we, again, we're really hopeful that the workbook is helpful to you if it. If you want to get it, again, you can go to anatomyofmarriage.com, click the workbook button. It's the best marriage workbook ever. I also would suggest if you're struggling with this kind of thing and you have trauma to heal from, get a therapist, go find a counselor, Mm -hmm. find someone at church that's good. Ask around, ask around for a good therapist. It's Mm -hmm. Therapy is not something to be ashamed of. It's very, very good. It's like going to the doctor. There's teletherapy. There's all kinds of things. So mm-hmm. there's not many excuses to have a therapist. There's sliding scales. There's for payments all kinds and of, all that. Thing, all kinds so. of things. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We certainly did. And if you did enjoy this episode and all the episodes we put out before, please rate and review our show on iTunes and share it with your friends. Mm-hmm. It means the world to us and it helps out our show. That's right. I just checked the iTunes recently and we have over 800 reviews and we're at five stars. Triple blamp. That's right. All right. We will see you guys next week and have a lovely evening. All right. Bye. Bye.